Father, thank you today for your word. Perfect, encouraging, profitable for reproof, rebuke, correction. Encouraging us. Today, I pray that we would have ears to hear and to receive what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our hearts and lives and in our church collectively. Pray that we would have a deeper understanding of your story. And as we look at a man of Judah who just had so many issues and problems and your ability to move in him and work in him, may it serve as a massive encouragement for us all this morning. God, be with us. Encourage us, we pray. Amen. 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 Well, this morning we are going to finish out all of Genesis, and I promised you we're going to take a little back look at Genesis 38 with Judah and Tamar. We're also going to see some things of resolution concerning Joseph, his brothers living in the land of Goshen. We see deep themes in this chapter of forgiveness, of reconciliation, and of hope that are presented to us throughout the rest of this story. And it's very, very encouraging. And in order to really set the stage for this, I wanna talk a little bit this morning about what creates a good story and how a good story is really rooted in the story of all time. If you consider our story this morning, every good story has characters. For if we didn't have characters, we wouldn't have a story at all, would we? In the story that we're currently studying, we have Joseph, we have his brothers, we have his father, Jacob, we have people who pop in and out of the story, like Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, we have Pharaoh. And in every good story that's ever been told, there's a moment where the characters' lives are building towards tension or conflict. This tension or conflict can be seen early on with Joseph and his brothers that lead him being thrown into a pit. And we say, how terrible, how awful. Yes, it was. And then sold into slavery where he rises in the house of Potiphar only to have Potiphar's wife betray him, have him put in prison. More conflict, problems. Some hope begins to enter in because he's there in prison with a butler and a baker who've committed some horrible act against Pharaoh. And in that, he interprets some dreams and asks them in return that they would promise they would not forget him. But yet again, this character is forgotten until two years later, we see him risen to a place of elevation in Egypt where he's second in command. And the conflict is reaching its height in our story as his brothers who have betrayed him are now down in Egypt with him at his mercy. And as the story begins to wind down for us and you see this moment of conflict, you have the climax that we see where a brother today substitutes himself and there is this breaking point. And then there's resolution, 47, 48, 49, 50. See, that's the model of any good story that you watch, see, or grips your heart today because it's actually the story of God. You have God who creates, God who makes, God who the story is actually all about. And in him making Adam and Eve to have relationship there with him. But what happens? There's conflict that comes into the story of God. It's gripping conflict as the serpent there deceives Adam and Eve and they take of the fruits 
And now they betrayed their God. They betrayed one another. There is sin. There is destruction. There's devastation that's entered this world. In the story of God, it doesn't move as swiftly in the lifetime of a single person, but it spans from generation to generation as God promises there'll be one who comes, who stomps out sin, who sits on the throne, and who reigns. We know that to be, in the story of Jesus, the climax of the conflict, where Jesus is crucified, buried, and resurrected three days later. And then we see resolution. And what I mean by that is sinners become friends of God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Not only that, but the king will someday return. He will reign physically, sit on the throne as we see that resolution follow through. Now, what I want us to hear today is each and every person has a part in the story of God. You're not the story. You're not the main character, but you have a part and a role and you are in this drama of God and he's calling us to be his. Each and every person is a character in his story and in that we all have conflict between us and God because of our rebellion, our selfishness, our pride, the hurt that we've caused others around us. There is real tension, real conflict that we've caused and this morning as we look at this, that's an idea that I want us to deeply hold on to this morning, that there is conflict whether you are a believer in Jesus or not. There's a reason why the world is the way that it is today. There's a reason it's so messed up. It's because this great conflict, our sin, has caused devastation and destruction. And what God has done in the climax is giving us Jesus Christ and us understanding who he is and coming to place our faith and trust in him. And then we see that resolution, peace between us and God. And I want you to know this grand narrative has really four words that you can kind of follow. You've got creation, you've got fall, you've got redemption, and then you have restoration of all things. That is the biblical narrative. That is the making of every good story that we see today. And this morning we're going to look at one man in particular who's going to end this story out for us. And his story is going to be a huge demonstration of what God can do in a person's life. And no, it's not Joseph and his forgiveness, though that does run deep. But we talked on forgiveness weeks and weeks ago, if you want to listen to that. We want to look at this man, Judah, who has a gnarly past. He's pretty messed up. He's got all kinds of issues and problems in his life. And in order to understand what's going on, we have to just backtrack a little bit from last week. You can keep your Bible open to Genesis 38, but I want to read to you 43, 1 through 8. We are at the peak of the story of the brothers and Joseph. They've been down into Egypt. There is their older for some, younger for the other two, Simeon. He's in prison at this time. And they've come home to their father and they said, we can't go back down to Egypt until when? Until our youngest brother, Benjamin, is brought back with us. And what does Jacob say? Oh, you will never do that. 
If I lose him, my heart, my soul, my being will go to the depths of Sheol. There'll be no rest, no peace if I lose him. And early on, Reuben says, I'll pledge my children that if we don't bring him back, they're yours. Jacob says, absolutely not. Well, the famine went on and they became so desperate. And you see this man, Judah, it says in verse one of chapter 43, now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, that being Jacob, said, why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told them was in the answer to these questions, could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? Now listen, verse eight. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and he will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame. If we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. I look at Judah, and when we get this, we think, this guy is so brave. This guy is so noble. But he wasn't always like this, was he? If you listen to his story, as we're going to do here this morning, his life was an absolute wreck and disaster. For many of us already know the backstory of Judah. Judah was the fourth of the sons born. And there with his brothers, as we learned in Genesis chapter 37, out there shepherding their flock as their brother Joseph came to them, said, let's do away with this dreamer. And there in that moment, they throw him in a pit as they discuss on, should we kill him? What are we going to do with him? And Reuben is off. Reuben is away. His heart was in angst over the situation. And then Judah, he struck gold. He saw some travelers coming by. And whether this was an act of nobility in order to not have his brother's blood on his hands, which some would argue maybe that's what he was doing, or if it was simply a way to say, we can get rid of our problem and we can profit off of it. Regardless, the lesser of two evils in this case is still pretty darn evil, isn't it? As he sells his brother into slavery. What changes in Judah's heart? What changes from Genesis 37 to Genesis 43? Well, I want us to look at Genesis 38. Probably one of the most horrific, difficult, odd stories that we're gonna read in Genesis, and it had quite a few of them. As we look at this man, Judah, he was headed down a pretty bad road. First, maybe murder my brother. Now, let's just sell him into slavery. Then this story in Genesis 38. I'm going to read a few verses to you, then we're going to talk it through. 
It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers, turned aside to an Adulamite, whose name was Hurrah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. She conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son. She called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Shabiz when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of your brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your own brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death. Then Judah said to Tamar, his brother-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Judah and his family were on an awful, terrible road of destruction. Now, as we read this, one of the questions that arises in our mind is, what on earth did Onan do to deserve to be put to death? The scriptures are silent on this. Any kind of speculation or thoughts about it would be simply the assumption on whoever is commentating on these scriptures. My only thought through it is if it was bad enough to deserve death, whatever he was doing was Noah generation bad. Things were not good. This was a wicked man who was entrenched in evil. And because we all desire justice and we all want to see justice play out, yet when justice plays out in a way in which we get a little, I don't know if that should have happened or not, and we begin then to judge the judge, we have placed ourselves in a position over God rather than letting the scriptures stay silent where they're at and saying, God is just, as we've seen. And God puts this man to death. That's as far as we can really get into that here this morning. You can listen to Genesis 5 and 6 if you want to hear more on the just God that we serve. Regardless, because of that culture in that day and age, the trend was the oldest was to have his name carried on because the brother, the younger brother, would then take that woman as his wife, but would raise the children not as his own, but as his brother. It was a way to ensure that the name went on in the family. Now, what this meant was the second son, Onan, he would not get the larger chunk of the inheritance, the larger chunk of the blessing. It would actually go to his son, who is instead of his brother. And because of this, Onan has no desire to impregnate this woman. And so he does the pull and pray and gets busted for it by God. Gets worked over. He's gone. Then what happens next? Judah's like, I got one more son left. What are we going to do? Something's wrong with this woman, isn't it? It's her fault that they're all dying. So he sends her away. When my son's old enough, at that time, you will have him. So as time goes by, and if you continue to read the story, Judah's wife dies. 
And when Judah's wife dies, he decides it's time to get the boys together for a little Las Vegas trip. And they head off to shear the sheep. And when you would shear the sheep, this party, this festival is taking place and there'd be temple prostitutes out and about. And so what does Judah do in the story? He decides, I'm broken. I've lost two sons. I've lost the comfort of my wife. I'm going to find comfort in a woman. And so there he talks to what he thinks is a temple prostitute. But Tamar, if you're tracking the story, Tamar, who was his daughter-in-law, caught wind of this. And she dresses up as a temple prostitute. And as he's walking by, she offers herself to him, knowing that he would be all about it. That's what he's there for. And in doing that, she says, I need payment. How are you going to pay me? He says, I'll give you one of my goats. Well, how will I know I'm going to get the goat? Why don't you give me your staff, your signet, and your cord? That was like your ID, who you are, how you did business transactions. He completes the deal, goes in unto his daughter-in-law, not knowing that it's actually her. Now, this story begins to get really chaotic and weird. What is going on here? What I want us to see in this is the double standard that Judah has. He's broken. He's beat up. He's going to go find comfort. He's going to go sleep with this woman even though it's not right, it's wrong, it's something that he should not be doing. And what happens is he gets wind that his ex-daughter-in-law, Tamar, that she, she is now pregnant. So now the man who paid for sex is upset about the girl who is pregnant, yet he doesn't know that it's the one that he slept with. And so what does he do? He calls her out because it's his problem. She's in his family. And he says, let's burn her. Let's kill her. Let's get rid of this problem. And what does Tamar do in the story? She pulls out the staff. She pulls out the signet there. She pulls out the cord. And she says, to whom this belongs to is to whose child is in me. And that's about how Judah felt. Small, shrunk back, pathetic. That's mine. And he utters these words. She is more righteous than I. See, this is what I want us to see in this progression of Judah. He goes from bad to more bad, just like every one of us. He's broken. He's devastated. And you think about his circumstances this morning. He lost two sons. He lost his wife. There is brokenness all around his world. This external brokenness that each and every person on the face of the planet experiences because of sin. By external brokenness, I ask you to just simply look into your own life and think about for a moment the pain and the problems that this world around you has brought to you. Suffering of loss, suffering of getting looked over, suffering of physical pain that's come on you. Every single person in this room experiences a form of external brokenness. But you see what's so incredible in what happens here. He doesn't just say, I'm going to let you off the hook. 
He doesn't just focus on her outward things. He looks in his own heart. And what does he say? He says, I'm broken. You're more righteous than me. And what's happening in this moment is Judah is being brought to this place where for so long he's a church kid. He's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He's then Reuben. He is Simeon, Levi, Judah. And he would have heard the promises the stories, this is who your God is, this is who you worship, this is who you're to be, this is how we're to act. He was this good, self-righteous church kid. Why do I think he's self-righteous? Because he's a man who can go get sex whenever he wants it, but then condemn the woman he takes it from. He has double standards where he sees the faults and failures of everybody else around him, but he can't see his own inward problems and struggles. He is so self-righteous. He's the man who drops a jaw when somebody else speaks a four-letter word but doesn't realize his life is a four-letter word if he doesn't change. That's who this man is. He's a man who's bought into the idea that it feels really good to be religious, to be thought well of, to be looked as great in the community. That's what church does for me. That's what God does for me. But he's not a man that can see his own internal brokenness until this moment. And this is one of the most beautiful moments in Judah's life. Because external brokenness leads to internal brokenness for him. And he's radically changed. By internal brokenness, I don't mean woe is me. I mean, he saw himself for who he truly is, a sinner. This woman, she is more righteous than I. Revival occurs when those who think they already know the gospel discover they do not really or fully know it. So I was prepping and planning this. I saw that thrown out by Tim Keller this week, and it just struck me. Because here you have Judah, I'm the son of Abraham. It's my biggest fear for my kids being raised in the church. That they know rules, religion, they know how to play the game, but they don't see their own inner brokenness because they look a little bit better than everybody else out there. Because they go to church and they sing the songs. Because they know the stories. They can develop a self-righteous attitude. My prayer is, is that radically implodes on them and it blows up their insides because they need to see how desperately they need Jesus. The first thing I taught my kids, like it or not, is that not you're saved by grace, but you're a wicked sinner, kids. I need them to know that and to see their position and that you're saved by grace. I need them to not develop self-righteous attitudes where they feel like our family has it together, but they need to peer behind the window and the curtain and see we're not perfect. And external brokenness met with internal brokenness is when God comes in and moves in our hearts and in our lives. It's causing him to look inward. For Judah, it's when he no longer just sees other people and thinks, I'm better than you, I'm better than you, I'm better than you. Tamar, I'm so much more righteous than you, but I myself need God. Now, 
Every person on the face of this earth has a broken soul. That doesn't mean every person experiences this internal brokenness. This idea that I'm broken before God. But I want to talk to you guys this morning about if you trust God, if you enter into relationship with God, he is going to be faithful to bring internal brokenness into your life. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll start in verse 5. Because it really sets the stage for this. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Okay. I'm speaking to you church people here today right now. Okay. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know Jesus, trust Jesus, love Jesus. There's so much external brokenness out there. It's the story of God where he then brings you into relationship with him and he gives us peace and hope, not only in this age, but the age to come and restoration of all things. But I want you to hear this because this is how God speaks to us as his children. He says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline. Padia is the word there that is used in the Greek. And this word that is used in the Greek comes from our word pediatrics. Pediatrics takes a look at the holistic view of a child, how to make a child healthy, how to make a child whole. So he says, do not regard the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there who the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? What? He is the father beyond your father because some of us didn't have good fathers. The father of spirits, it says there. Then it goes on. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This word this morning is really important for us because it's talking about this idea of God disciplining his own children. And in that, the purpose for discipline is so that we grow up strong and mature as the author of Hebrew lays out there right around verse 11. Now, Padilla really gets its teeth into the understanding of what it means to discipline somebody. And what we're gonna see even in the life of Joseph and how he handles his brothers is it's not just retaliation or the way in which so many of us operate when we want to hurt or harm somebody because they offended us, but it's raising and training them up for their good. Good example, last week we took a whole Sunday and talked about lying. And then I was hanging out with some guys and they had to remind me of that study. It was a wonderful time. So I was just telling fish stories, you know. Um, anyways, anyways. So this idea of chastising. My daughter, right after this sermon online, who wasn't in here, she was back there, uh, 
Sunday night, it all broke loose. They were upstairs, we were downstairs. Eleanor is coming down, just bawling her eyes out and crying. Ava, she hit me. And Ava just, I did not. <laughs> it was like, she never reacts that way. She's so nurturing and kind when anybody gets hurt. She's never defensive when anybody gets hurt, but she's so defensive. So I already know she's lying. Like, it's just over, all right? I did not. And we talked to her, and we talked to her. And I go, okay, Ava, Benny was upstairs. How about we get Benny down here? She goes, why don't I go get him? I'm like, I know what you're going to do. You're going to tell him to lie. Like, you got to be kidding me, Rue. Like, you cannot do that. So, Benny, come on down. And he's about ready to cry because he thinks he's in trouble. No, you're not in trouble, son. What happened? Did Ava hit Eleanor? And he's going, yes. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. He loves his sister so much. He does not want her to get in trouble, but he doesn't want to lie. He's a sweet little boy. He's got his own issues and problems. And so... Pull Ava aside, and we just got done preaching on this, and I'm so thankful for that time because I sat down, and, and I didn't just say, don't lie because God hates it. Don't lie because you get in worse trouble. And I got down on her level, and I said, Ava, when you lie, it means you don't care for daddy in that moment. You don't care about the truth. And I said, when you hit in our family, you know how the punishment goes down, but because you also lied, I am going to discipline you in an extra way. So she accepted that and responded to it. Well, the next night, uh, we have this closet in our bathroom, and she climbed up there to get the flossers down, and she spilt them all over the floor, and I walked in there. You know when you just had a day, and then, like, the flossers are spilt all over the floor? <laughs> You're recalling your parenting days, the littlest things, and I'm just like, who did this? And Ava walks in in front of all the kids and she says, Daddy, I did it and I don't want to lie to you anymore. And, and I share that story. I know, it's sweet. I share that story for a reason. We disciplined her. She broke down in tears the night before. But it was for correction. She's always about self-preservation, not getting busted. And yet discipline is leading her to walk uprightly. And that's what the Lord is doing in us. Both Proverbs and the book of Hebrews use their readers, urge their readers to respond to discipline rather than to react to it. Maybe you had a reactor, flailing and mad and angry. We get that way with God when life doesn't go our way. Shake her fist and get mad. What would it look like to respond to it, not just simply react to it. And I know that we must at times bring unpleasant things into our child's life if they lie, if they steal, if they cheat, if they're cruel, if they're selfish. But there's a large difference between nurturing discipline and retribution. There's a huge difference in that. Padilla is not just about justice. It's an exercise of love here this morning. And it's to nurture somebody. And that's what God does for us. If you would trust him, if you would believe him, this discipline that you feel like you're under, she is more righteous than I, as Judas says there. God is working in his heart. Then you fast forward to this story. And you have Judah pledging himself for his brother, Benjamin. And they get down into Egypt. This is years later. 
standing before a man that can have the power to give life, letting their life extend, or take his life. And this guy, them not knowing, being their brother, had actually planted in the bag of the youngest brother, his brother by full blood, a cup, his cup. And he was found guilty of stealing. And now on trial, standing before Joseph, them not knowing it was him, how are the brothers going to respond? Because what Joseph does is he looks at the other nine brothers, 10 brothers, and he says, all of you can go, but Benjamin, but Benjamin. And in their gut, they just sink. The guilt, the shame, having been found out, as we saw last week, overwhelming them, the Lord is doing this to us. What happens? Judah is going to step up. Judah is going to take the place. Judah says, let me stand in Benjamin's stead. I want to read to you from Derek Kidner, great commentator all the way throughout this. He said, just how well judged was this policy can be seen by a growth of new attitudes in the brothers as alternating sun and frost broke them open to God. This was perfectly put. Sun and frost. Sun beaming down, showing favor to them, putting more in their bags than they deserved. Not keeping them all in prison, just Simeon was kept in prison. Sun being poured on them. Frost. He was harsh with them. He spoke hard words. And he alternated between these two things in order to bring about their confession and their repentance. It's the same thing with my daughter. Girl, I love you. I care for you. But I've got to discipline you. Sun and frost brings about their repentance in this story. And that's what Joseph has done. He's not just seen as this tyrant and jerk, but he has reason to why the story is the way that it is. And it leads to this moment of reconciliation. It's absolutely beautiful. And here's what I want to leave you with this morning. Judah is amazing in this story. Joseph, uncomparable. He forgives them. And in Genesis 50, after their father died, the brothers come and they're like, so dude, now that our brother, our father's dead, are you going to kill us? Did you just do it for daddy? No. My forgiveness runs deep. My forgiveness is going to continue on. Just because dad's gone doesn't mean I'm gonna stop forgiving you and caring for you. Judah, his substitution where he stood in the place of his brother Benjamin. Both of these stories point to a greater than. What I mean by that is you get the greater than Judah, who actually comes from the line of the tribe of Judah, Jesus. And you get the greater than Joseph, and what I mean by that is the one who forgives and continues to forgive because he gave his life for us. It's an absolutely fascinating concept when we begin to understand and see Judah and Benjamin not as savior types, but as ones who actually fall short of what it means to be a savior and that the Messiah must still come. Joseph's salvation was temporary as they'd be thrown into bondage. What God spoke into Judah is absolutely incredible. Let's read in Genesis 49 as we finish out here this morning. We're going to look at Jacob on his deathbed, and he begins to give out blessings. 
And it says that, then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall come to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruit of my strength. Preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. He's bucking the trend that was the cultural way of giving the biggest, most priority to the oldest son. And here is why. He says, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. He slept with one of Jacob's handmaidens who actually had half-brothers through them. Pretty, pretty messed up situation there. Because look, the blessing is going to pass over you because of this. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. These two brothers murdered an entire village because of what happened to their sister. They're missing out on this blessing that's to come their way. Judah. This is incredible. Judah. He's kind of a skis, isn't he? He slept with his daughter-in-law and has kids with them. He was the one who sold his brother into slavery. He said, this is a great idea. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. To him shall be the obedience of all the people. Binding his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This is an absolutely incredible story of redemption because not only has Judah been restored to relationship with his brother, but we see this man who says, no, you are more righteous than I, Tamar. This man is the man that God is going to move through in order to initiate the coming of Jesus Christ. He comes through the lion, the tribe of Judah. Judah is to be reigning over his brothers. It's from that throne, the scepter will not pass. It is from that throne that Jesus stems from, from Judah's lineage. This is the way that God works and God moves in our lives. The ultimate sun, the ultimate frost. The idea that Jesus loves, Jesus cares, Jesus descended from on high, Jesus has come for us. The idea of frost, you're not as good as you think you are. You're not more righteous than those others that are out there sinning it up. You need to repent. You need to know him. This, this comes from the line of Judah. And we see redemption for the world at large. Redeemers, I want you to consider this this morning. Your own story. Your story in light of God's story and how God has fit you into his story. Your story is more like Judah's than anybody else's. And so is mine.
God has worked and moved and called us to be his. And I want you to rejoice because of what he has done. And if you don't know this great God, I want you to consider the external brokenness around you and tell me, what's your remedy? How does it get solved? What is God pressing upon your heart? Do you know something of internal brokenness? And it needs to intersect so you see the God of the universe. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you were given for us. Thank you that we can have hope because of what you have ultimately done. Thank you how all of these stories point towards you, the one who has given his life for us. None of them ever could stand fully in the place of fully savior. That is you and you alone and you willingly gave your life for us. So may we rejoice in that. May people's eyes be opened. May we have the good news of the gospel wash over our lives. May we see you this morning. Amen.